What in the world would it feel like to be swimming across the ocean for 56 hours? Um, what? Where would your brain go? What kind of mindset would you find yourself in? How physically exhausted would you be? Um, how would you even train for something that incredibly epic? Um, and really, ultimately, where how would you handle those self-doubts, those fears, that those feelings that come up when you are completely stripped bare from a physical endurance challenge? Um, those are the questions that are just going through my head uh, as I'm preparing to sit down and talk with Cameron Bellamy. Uh which I am so incredibly excited for. This is going to be an amazing episode. And it's about something that, I mean, few people have ever experienced. Like, I have to imagine these long-distance endurance swimmers are few and far between. And the ones who have swam as long as Cameron have across the ocean, like, across oceans... Um, it has to just be this rare group of people who, who has this kind of interesting understanding and interesting perspective on the world from taking on an event like this. Um, so anyways, yeah, so excited to talk with Cameron. Uh, Cameron, I got introduced to by John Peterson. John's been on the episode, uh, three times at this point and he, he was a part of a team that rode a boat across the Drake Passage um, from Chile to Antarctica. Uh, it was called The Impossible Row. You can see a documentary about it on the Discovery Channel. And Cameron was one of his crewmates for that challenge. So uh, this episode kind of has has it all as it pertains to the ocean. We talked with Cameron about um, these epic swims, including one he did from Barbados to St. Lucia. Uh, then we talk about rowing across oceans. He was a part of a team that rowed across the Indian Ocean. Uh, we talk about the impossible row across the Drake Passage. So um, this one's awesome. But I think the thing that I'm really, I really appreciate after talking with Cameron is how he was willing to dive deep on his mindset and how he was able to mentally handle these big ginormous uh, challenges. Cameron also kind of dives into his his whole journey that led him to um, becoming an athlete um, and how it ties in with his charity, which is the Abunye Challenge. Uh, you can check that out at their website, abunyechallenge.com. That's U-B-U-N-Y-E challenge.com. And basically he is extremely passionate about early childhood education and the access to it. Uh, and he grew up in South Africa. I'll let him tell the story in the episode, but he's basically out there trying to um, build facilities for early childhood education in rural parts of South Africa and Zimbabwe. So please support them. Check out their website. Um, see what you guys can do uh, to help to help them out. Um Let's get right into it. This has been an amazing episode, so I'm psyched to share it, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, this is the Like a Bigfoot podcast, number two, two, oh my gosh, 
Number 324 with Cameron Bellamy. This week, I am like going to be geeking out, Cameron, just so you know, but I'm so excited to welcome Cameron Bellamy to the podcast. Uh, Cameron is a multi-world record holder um, and uh, in swimming and rowing and, and stuff like that, which we're going to get into. Uh, but I have to start with this. You have a Wikipedia page. Is that weird? <laughs> like, um, <laughs> that's the first yeah. thing that came up when I typed your name and I'm like, whoa, that's yeah, awesome. Is. I've had a few people comment on that. And actually, because I actually, I read it and I, I kind of saw it when it came out. I don't know who wrote it or, yeah. or you know, why. Um, but yeah, some of the data, some of the information there is not correct. <laughs> so but I'm just like, I don't know how to change it. I just kind of like ignored it. But was, yeah, I mean, there's some stuff in there that's, yeah, it's semi-accurate and some that's not. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's kind of cool, I guess. That, that's amazing, man. Well, I have to ask just, you know, being a long distance swimmer and someone who's rowed across multiple oceans, what what is it about the water and the ocean specifically that kind of like draws you? Like, what is it that, that you find passion in with that? Yeah, I guess from a uh, holistic level, you know, the water is just like, it's this meditative medium, you know, I just love even just looking at the water when you're walking past the ocean or a lake, you get kind of, I feel drawn to it. Um, so that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that it's in, it's in my family history. Uh, we kind of grew up on boats. My father was uh, quite a famous yachtsman. Uh, he sailed, made the America's cup team for Australia. And then he moved to South Africa. He represented Australia and South Africa in sailing. And so he was a, he was one of the first professional like uh yachting like yachtsman like yachtsman who were, you know hired professionally to to skipper boats and so he like even when we were growing up he had he was sponsored a racing boat which we kind of used for have family holidays and stuff <laughs> so yeah i kind of grew up on the water and um you know when i was quite young i was when i was a, just started being a teenager i was trying to pick a sport in south africa and my brother used to row and i just saw how much fun he was having and so i just picked up picked it up and I, I rode until I was like 23, 24 years old, you know, through high school, through college. And I just loved being on the water. And yeah. so like swimming eventually just became this like natural progression from being out, out of the water to being in the water. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Did your dad, like when you were growing up, did he ever come home and like, how did he share what adventures he was having you know because i'm sure he had some wild experiences doing yeah. that like how was he able to share that with you with you yeah it's funny like my dad like maybe a little bit unlike me he's like a very he's a very loud dude and he uh, he would always be telling stories you know he's typically he's actually australian originally so you, you know typical australians you know quite brash and uh he would always tell stories and that's like it kind of drew me into this kind of blackbird adventure too because he would tell these amazing stories of how he was racing he would used to race across oceans and stuff and he was generally the skipper or the night helms night helmsman and he used to like talk himself up a lot but i i believed everything <laughs> and uh and he, and he did he made like he made he was one of the top sailors in the world i think he was he used to say that he was you know regarded as like the top five yachtsmen in the world and uh, i guess i kind of grew up wanting to emulate him in a way yeah yeah did he i'm when you're out on the boat with him as a kid like i don't know to me the ocean just seems like unlimited adventure like yeah. when i think of the ocean i'm just like and i'm from iowa in the middle of the united states <laughs> so maybe that's part of it but uh 
Yeah. But I just imagine this unlimited access to all sorts of adventures and stuff. So like, what was that like as a kid? Yeah, that's a great point too. Yeah, it's, uh, I can pick up on that. Yeah, like as a kid, it's awesome because you look out at the ocean and like you said, it's just there's so much you can do there. One of the things I I love about open water swimming and especially like if you're doing like a swim from an island to an island, you, for example, like my latest swim, I was swimming from Barbados to St. Lucia, right? And Bar- St. Lucia is pretty far away. Like you can't see it, right? But you're standing, <laughs> you're standing on the beach in Barbados and you're about to get in the water to start the swim. And you're just looking out at the ocean. You can't see where you're going. You just see this vast expanse of, of water. And there's so much uncertainty there. And I think that's what draws me to it a lot. Like, you don't know what the hell's going to happen. You don't know what's underneath yeah. the water. You don't know what the sharks are like, the jellyfish are like. You don't know what the conditions are going to become. It's just this, like, amazing um, adventure awaits you. And there's just so much uncertainty, which I think, which I, like, I'm very attracted to. It's like, it's my adrenaline rush. Yeah. You know, you don't know what's going to happen out there. And you're, just, <laughs> you're doing a pioneering swim. Like, no one's ever been there before. Because, like, you know, the waters, the ocean is kind of still untouched. For example, in the country of Barbados, I think it's it's, a, it's an island, but I think you know seventy percent of, of the population don't know how to swim, and so it's just like yeah, they just they, they scared of it for a good reason. You know, there's yeah. like a lot of mytho- mythology on the island, like that talks about the ocean. One of the famous sayings I've heard on the island there is that the ocean has no back door, and it's true. Like if you get caught in currents and you can't swim that well, like there's you know, no it's... there's no second like you made a mistake and now there's no way out of it exactly yeah what did they th- like what are the people there you know if 70 percent can't swim what were they thinking when you're like hey i'm gonna do all these giant swims from here yeah i know it's kind of disbelief eh? it's and they kind of it doesn't really process for a while and you have to explain to them like i swim like you know 12 hours a day in training you know and stuff like that and they go oh yeah now i can kind of see it but they obviously there's a lot of there's a huge danger element so they obviously think yeah. you're a bit crazy yeah can we start with that whole adventure like i'm completely fascinated um i mean so barbados to saint lucia how long it took you like 50 50 plus hours yeah that was a it was a 56 hour swim and that was the world record right um or is wikipedia have it wrong Yeah, it kind of has it wrong. Like if you looked, there's obviously categories of records mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. Like um, I yeah. think if you looked at it, like the longest ocean swim, channel swim, yeah. I used the jellyfish, like a stinger suit, which is just okay. like a, a rash vest, really, because I got stung by quite badly on the first night. And so that's kind of looked at as an assisted swim too. So, I mean, if you kind of discount on that as being an assisted swim, it would be like the longest ever channel swim. Yeah. But I I don't, I don't want to claim anything because, yeah, yeah. you know, like a friend of mine has the actual, like without using a stinger suit and she's yeah. an amazing swim. She did 120 kilometers swim and it was like 40 hours. Um, I, I, I wouldn't want to take anything away from that swim. So yeah. I'd rather just leave my Wikipedia page as is. <laughs> just, kind of like just like, claim ignorance <laughs> um dude but 56 hours like yeah. that's the thing i can't really wrap my head around um you know i've 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 done some ultra runs for like i think my max has been like 12 hours and that seemed yeah, tiring too. enough you know yeah. uh but oh, yeah. 56 is just insanity but to do it while also swimming and you just mentioned how you know, you don't know what to expect from the ocean. Yeah. And to be able to take that on with a tired brain and an exhausted body just is really fascinating to me. 
Yeah, there's obviously there's so many aspects to that long swim like that. There's there's you have the swimming aspect, so you got to train for that. You got to be like technically a really good swimmer. Yeah, like I said before, you got to get up to like twelve hours a day of swimming of training, and and then the mental aspect is just uh, is probably the craziest part of it. Like, how do you stay awake for like two and a half days? Yeah, how do you how do you yeah how do you process your emotions when you while you're out there? And that's in some ways that's the most difficult. Because you can train, you can train, do the training. It's a very kind of linear thing. You just train more you train, like the further that you can swim, right? Yeah. But on the mental side, how do you like get used to swimming for uh, that long without with the sleep deprivation? So I, I try to train for that too. Like the one week I did uh, three 24-hour swims in a week in Barbados. And so you're kind of getting used to sleep deprivation and resting for like two days and another one and then another yeah. one, you know. Um, but it, that doesn't really prepare you enough for what actually you experience out there, especially when you're trying to go through your second night. Um, and yeah, so I've actually done a lot of mental training since about 2017 um, to kind of get used to. I, I didn't intend to swim this long back then, but I, I, I remember working with a psychologist on like the sporting the mental aspect of these swims. And he really helped me um, process it because... Do you want to dive a little deeper into this at the moment? Like um, yeah. basically, like I grew up like like flat water rowing, and your 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 ra- your racing time is like six minutes, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so it's just a bunch of bunch of lactic acid, a lot of pain, and then you're done. You have to put and, up with the pain for six minutes. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there you just like you all of these kind of feelings come up, like fears about the pain, about success, about failure. They come up, and you just repress, repress, repress. Yeah, and it's just really good handy skill that like humans have perfected. You know, you just repress all that stuff, the negative stuff, and it's like keep going. You know, um, and then I started. After I went from rowing to swimming, and I started doing twelve hour like English Channel swims, seventeen hour like Molokai and Hawaii Channel swims, and then you're getting and it's a little bit longer. And, but you can still repress. So you still can repress those feelings not enough and you can just keep going and like just force a way to, to get it, you know, like the bit of like positive reinforcement, a bit of pride, a bit of ego, you know, using yeah. all that to get you across, you know, maybe a bit of anger too. Um, <laughs> and then, but then like suddenly it gets like more than a day of swimming. And like, for example, this 56 hour swim, like after 30 hours, you can't just keep repressing stuff. The stuff just wants to come up, you know, and it's yeah. just too long. It's too long. You know, you, your mind like destroys itself eventually. And so my, the previous big swim I did before this Barbados and Lucia was to swim around Barbados. And that was a 40 hour swim. And I failed the first time because I kind of forgot all the, that mental training I'd done. Yeah. Um, and I was just on a, I was, as part of, I think I was about halfway around the island. It had taken me like uh, 20 odd hours already. And I was just like, I was mentally wasn't in a good place. I was just repressing and using a lot of ego to try to get me through. And eventually I felt like I just couldn't cope mentally, physically, more mentally. And so I, I pulled myself out at about um, probably three quarters of the way around. So I'd swum for about 27 hours. And that's, it was probably like uh, 60 kilometers, right? 70 kilometers. And, but I knew I could do it, you know? And yeah. for the next like two months, I just trained really hard. I went to Australia, actually just lived in the, lived next to the beeves, trained really hard and like really worked in the mental aspect. And I kind of reinvent, I kind of went back to all this mental training I'd done before. Then I went back and just completely got detached from the swim. I went around the island and just every time I had a negative feeling, I just kind of processed it. Like, you know, you just, yeah. you're a human being, right? You're supposed to have these negative feelings. You inherit these negative fears 
from just by being a human being, but also what you learn during your life. You know, you fear of, you're scared of pain, you're scared of success, you're scared of failure. Um, and once, when all these emotions are coming up, I use these techniques and I just kind of let them go, you know? And yeah. I like, I felt like I just cruised around the island. I just it felt like almost easy. It was like a cheat code, you know? Like, yeah. It's almost like a meditation, especially for the second half of the swim, but you're meditating on your negative, these negative feelings that keep coming up and you kind of just let them go. And so you kind of you're always positive, you know, you let them come up and then you're, you're processing it. You process and you don't try to change these feelings because they're, yeah. they're there. They've already happened. Like, and so you, just you already like, had the feeling. Exactly. Yeah. You can't do anything. And then eventually just by, just by sitting with that feeling, I'm not trying to judge it or change it. It eventually the energy just dissipates because the energy has to go somewhere. Right. And it's not, yeah. there's no more energy going into it. And eventually it just dissipates and, and floats away. And you always come out like so positive, at least lights are on the other side and more positive. Um, and I did the same thing with the Barbados and Lucia swim. And that was really, that was, I mean, it was long, but it was extremely, um, it's extremely hot. It was, it got up to 90 degrees <laughs> on the second day. It's just, it's like a bath. And I've, I luckily I swam in the Gulf. Uh, I was living in St. Pete's in Florida for, um, portion of my training for like a month. And I was training in like almost 90 degree water. But it's like it's a different sport, hey. Like it's it drains you so much, and I really needed like the uh, to just this letting go part of like aspect, you know, to get through that. And my crew too. Like I'm in my on the second day, through the middle of the day, like I was dizzy, I was hallucinating, I was like all over the place. I kept like yeah. hallucinating and thinking my uh, I had a kayaker next to me, and I kept thinking he was a uh, an Eskimo. <laughs> like I just had these weird hallucinations, <laughs> and eventually I got to the boat one point the main boat where they were feeding me they used to throw me water bottles and stuff <clears throat> and the one girl on the crew is like my um she's my go-to person in barbados who like looks after me and does all my swims and my helps me with training she like looks at me and she said no camera's not like doing well and so like the team the team really helped me to get through that part yeah yeah they just told me what to do like just had more feeds more ice in my drinks and just got to get to sunsets on the second day and then i, I managed to get through that it, that hard part that's amazing well so even it just seems like you know obviously the physical stuff getting you the water getting you the food and stuff like that's awesome to have them there because you probably don't want to spend any energy that you don't need to spend but then yeah. it's interesting to tie it into the mental part because you're almost like I don't even really need, I don't want to have to spend any mental energy right now either. And so when the feelings come up and you just let it go, like, does that in a weird way, like conserve some of that mental so energy much. so you don't hit that fatigue? So much. Yeah. You save so much energy, but not like mentally, like working too hard Yeah, you know, and just letting go of these feelings. Yeah. such a good point. Yeah. What, and, uh, um, when you're, I, I, cause I've talked to people who have ran, for days and on a little sleep and you know i just feel like it's different because of swimming you have to be so conscious of when you're taking a breath and maybe it's automatic for you because you've trained and and things like that but but you can't really just completely check out you know yeah. what i mean yeah. and you can't just sit down yeah. and and rest and cry and stuff like that either <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's the and that there's with swimming compared to running it's easier and harder in yeah. certain respects than than running. Like swimming is a meditation. You in you don't have to think really. Just one arm over the other, and you breathe every third stroke or second stroke or fourth stroke, whatever. It becomes very automatic, and you just you following your kayaker and you are following the main the main boat, and it, it feels like a meditation. 
So that's great. That's that's definitely a positive. As as opposed to when you're running, you always have to look where you're stepping. It does become automatic, but you do have to be like more alert. Yeah. With uh, another hand with swimming, like you can't sleep, you can't sit down. Like if you're treading water, you're getting swept away by the currents. Like you never yeah. want to be stopped. And when you do stop, when you're drinking, eating, you just, you drink and eat for as little time as possible. Like yeah. 20 seconds, then you go again. And so there's no sleep. I assume when you're running, I, I never. Assuming you do these multi-day runs, you will probably try sit down and rest for a bit. At least close your eyes or start walking. What do you like? They a, say they call it dirt naps. Just lay down in the dirt, take a five-minute nap. <laughs> yeah, even that would help so much. Yeah, um, I can imagine that would help so much. But when you're swimming, like especially at about three, I'm sure the runners find the same thing. Three to five in the morning, mm. when you haven't seen the light in so long, and you've obviously been swimming for multiple days. Or running for multiple days that's the, definitely the hardest part by a long yeah. stretch you get super almost depressed um you know that sad seasonal affective disorder kind of kicks in you haven't seen the sun in so long and you you get this um depression and it's probably the lowest point in your life but then suddenly the sun comes up and you see that first ray of light and it feels like you're the, it's like the best time of your life. You yeah. know, it's this amazing transition to like the worst times of the best time of your life. <laughs> and it feels like you've slept all day. So just, I always know that when, when you're hitting those, like those d- difficult hours at night, like three to five in the morning, you just got to, uh, you got to just meditate or just force yourself through it. And you just make, make sure you get to that first ray of sunlight. Yeah. And that comes from experience, like knowing that the rays of sunlight is going to energize you again. I, I learned that lesson when we rode across the Indian Ocean. That was a two-month trip, and we were sleeping because of two hours on, two hours off the whole time. Yeah. And then there's two hours off, you're not sleeping for two hours, maybe maximum <laughs> an hour. So you're always sleep deprived. And if you get that really bad shift from like three to five in the morning, you feel it then. And uh and because you're always sleep deprived, I think that was actually really good training for like yeah. this, this long distance swimming. Yeah. And you talked about the darkness, like it being the darkest moment, like literally it's you're surrounded by darkness and you're like, it has to be weird, man. Like you're floating in the darkness as you're swimming along. And I don't know, can you just tell like how long into that swim did things start getting kind of like weird in your brain or, or, you know, did, did you never let it kind of get to that point? So things are always a little bit weird. You know, you get into the swim and you have, 60 hours to swim so your mind yeah. is a bit like in the beginning it's a little bit agitated it's like what the hell is going on what am i yeah. doing yeah and so and you i feel like you can never like change an attitude forcefully right you just got to go with it and you can meditate and stuff but you can't like change your attitude right yeah it's way too much energy so you just I usually just go with my thoughts in the beginning and like for the first 20 hours <laughs> like first like third of the swim and it goes for like shorter swims too like if you're doing a 12 hour English channel swim this will go for four hours it's always like the first third of the swim your mind is just like agitated state you know just like it's always thinking yeah and then you get into the next like until halfway where um you just meditate into it that's when you go deep and then on this last the barbados and lucia swim which was 56 hours say from 30 hours onwards that's when it was really hot it got really really hard and that's when i really needed to kind of use these letting go techniques yeah um to process the negative feelings and especially that night being the second night and i've never done two nights back to back before that was tough um but we had a full moon and the water was quite had quite a nice texture it was actually it was a bright bright full moon so it almost felt like it was like it was light you know yeah yeah and then suddenly we could see like some new show like appeared on the horizon you know (laughs) and i was like whoa it's right there that has to be energizing 
Yeah, 100%. And Slake, it's, it's a volcanic island. It's massive. Like Barbados is a coral island. It's, it's flat. Oh, yeah. The Nusha just like goes up from nothing. <laughs> and it's like, wow, it's there, you know? And then, yeah, we had some good wins towards the end. So we were going to get a little push, which was, yeah. helped a lot too. That's good. Wow, man. Dude, so uh, I just, it's such an amazing feeling that I'm assuming not a lot of human beings have been able to have that experience you know like i mean i'm sure you know all the long distance swimmers it can't be a huge community of people right uh, it's probably a, yeah it's, it's a handful yeah <laughs> <laughs> that do the distance stuff really long stuff yeah yeah, yeah. have yeah. you found the letting go technique like do you are you able to utilize that in like everyday life now yeah 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 it's, it's been so beneficial i yeah the when i first learned it i was like this is gonna help me with my swimming so much yeah. And then I started doing it in normal life. And yeah, it's it's amazing technique. There's actually a book called Letting Go. So the psychologist I um I spoke to initially, he um he walked me through all the steps and it was great like working with somebody, a professional, using like he was teaching you like hands-on how to use these techniques. But then um towards the end of when I was working with him, he gave me two suggestions for um for books to read on the subject. The first one I can't actually remember the name, but I, I read the first like chapter and I didn't really connect with me and then the second one is called letting go and uh, it really i uh, really uh, yeah just from the day from like the first page i just knew this was a great book i've actually read it five times i read it once a year yeah and it's really kind of he talks discovery he talks very eloquently about the letting this technique and how beneficial it is and um it seems like the authors are very kind of um, enlightened psychologist to say uh yeah i think it's probably the best way to describe him and uh, he just he talks about these techniques in a really nice way and there are techniques you can actually like practice day to oh, day. Yeah. Day to day. Yeah. And it's very Dude, fundamental. I'm, I'm getting that immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I told I told him I actually but uh, we started a book club recently with some friends and this is our first book. <laughs> no way, really? Yeah. I love those books that because there's so many <clears throat> like self-help books and things like that, like strategies for like like just managing the world, the complicated world. And uh but the ones you find where you're like, I'm gonna read this multiple times like when i need a refresher i'll go back to this one like that's the i think that's the most important part like you can get hung up on reading like a billion but not actually apply anything versus one or two where you're really going to apply the lessons and i, I think that's way more powerful definitely yeah you kind of you study the book as opposed to reading it right yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> what um just last kind of big question about just the swims in general but when you're down there it just seems like and i'm probably way wrong about this because i've never done it but it seems like uh, conditions can change and things like that but but ultimately you're going through the water the whole time what are the things that like get your heart rate up or like that you're afraid of you know like if nothing's changing is it just thoughts that come in that that get your heart rate going or or what no, I mean, there's definitely physical things out there yeah. that are scary. I mean, I've never really had an issue with a, with a shark. I've When I did the Molokai channel between Molokai and Oahu and Hawaii, we had a tiger shark that just like kind of just cruised past us. Massive one. But it's Hawaii, so you can see like 50 meters. So yeah. <laughs> it was about 20 meters in front of us, but it yeah. literally swam past us. And initially when I saw it, I got a fright. But then like I just kept looking at it. It was like the most relaxed and graceful thing I think I've ever, I'd ever seen. 
Yeah. And so I, it made me actually more relaxed and it just like disappeared into the abyss, you know? Yeah. And I was like, that's, it made, it made me feel so good. Um, as opposed to these little, little things called box jellyfish, <laughs> they're like my, my nemesis. Um, yeah, and, and lion Portuguese man of war too. Um, and lion's mane jellyfish, but yeah, the box jellyfish and the Portuguese man of war, those, those guys, okay. Yeah. They, you'll get you eventually, you know? I was once doing a training swim in Barbados. I was doing a, it was at night. I was doing a 24 hour swim in Barbados. And usually I'd done 20, I'd done night swims before there, but, and I never had a kayaker. This was the first time I was using a kayaker. And it was like this, it was this guy I was really good friends with. He helped me to train. We saw on the English Channel last year, actually, which is quite an achievement from Barbados. Obviously, <laughs> he's grown up in like hot water his whole life. Yeah. But this dude was like kayaking next to me. And it was about one in the morning. I'm covered in white stuff because I use this stuff called diaper, was diaper rash cream, basically desitin. No like, way, really? Yeah, so yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, well, I, saw, I saw some pictures and I'm like, well, I got to ask him about that. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's I'm like, do you need that much sunscreen? Like, come on, oh, man. Yeah, you no. do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least desitin like, sticks to you and it's like a physical barrier to the sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, so it's like one of those. It's one in the morning. Uh, Mark is kayaking next to me. I'm covered in white stuff still because I've been swimming through the whole day. And then, like, I hit something and on my elbow, and it's like I've been hit by a sledgehammer, like on my head. Like everything just like blacked out. And I came to like maybe a second later, and greeted by the most insane pain I've ever been through. And that was the easy part because then, like, some of this neurotoxin like gets into your system and you like oh. start spasming and everything. And I remember like when it happened, I was like, I started screaming, obviously. And then Mark was like, what's what's wrong? And I was like, man, something just stung the hell out of me eventually yeah. when I could speak. And he's like, it must have been like a blue bottle or something. Like, I was like, bro, that's not that's no blue bottle. That's something that was, that was powerful. We had no idea. And then after like five minutes, he eventually says, what do we do? So, and we were like half an hour from our home base at that stage. I was like, man, I can try swim back. So I started swimming back and then I got stung by like, I got stung on my ear and on my shoulder. And the ear was the, uh, the worst one, as you can imagine. Literally jumped out the boat, jumped out the water on the back of his kayak, almost tipped him over. He can't touch the shore. I got stung on my leg because my leg was dragging in the water. So now I had four box jellies. And if you gave me the option of like not living anymore, I'd probably have taken it at that stage. Like it's so much pain. And it's like this toxin is just going through your body and you're like, your whole body's just giving up. You know, it's like your back spasming, you can't breathe, like, because how the yeah. allergic reaction and like the muscles are like just going into like convulsions. Eventually got to the hospital, his dad picked us up. And that was like, that was, I could have died out there if I was by myself. Yeah. And, I, and I, and we were like 40 meters from shore. Like, I don't think I would have made it. Yeah. Because I had to swim, sort of swim. I could have got stuck four more times and there's no help when I get to shore. Like, and so I have this like repetitive like thought about that. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of fear. And I've tried to process it, you know, but it's hard to process that amount of like fear. And then so when you're getting back in that same water and now you're swimming from Barbados to St. Lucia, you still think you think about that's all you, you do think about that stuff. And there's a lot of fear. Um yeah. And especially like the first night I was swimming, I was stung by something that I don't it wasn't it's hard to know when you get stung by something that's it's a really strong sting like you don't know what it is initially eventually you figure it out that it's not a box jelly it could be like a man of war but I got stung the first night and I like kind of freaked out a bit and so I put on the suit for about three hours because usually it takes three hours for the toxins to get out of you and I just learned that from experience I wore it for three hours and took it off and um but still like then you, you still you think about it you know 
So yeah, that that's the biggest like physical fear that I have out there is the yeah. um is the jellyfish. And every time now I get when I get so in the sea, I get touched by anything. Sometimes you kind of you get this uh, this fear kind of comes up again. Um, yeah. <clears throat> that's like think- when you're uh, like I I started trail running in Virginia and you'd see a copperhead. And oh, the, yeah. the amygdala part of your brain would just fire and like you just be like, oh, like make weird, the weirdest noises. And then after that, every stick you saw on the ground, like any yeah. route, you're like, that's <laughs> another one. And you'd freak out. Oh, exactly. It's the same thing. Yeah. With the jellyfish. Except so way the, more the, crazy if you got stung by a billion jellyfish. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is that the, the tentacles, they, even if they get detached from the, whatever the organism is, if it's a man or a jellyfish, yeah. the stings will still like, you'll t- still touch them and they'll still sting you, which is so annoying because they, they don't sting you as much, but it still feels like it when, the, yeah. when you get touched by it and you have this kind of repressed fear, you know? Dude, what does, uh, what does it feel like when neurotoxins are going through your body? Like, can you describe that? It's hard. It's got to be experienced, unfortunately. But, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. You can imagine, you can imagine like, the, you can imagine this, the scary feeling of like your airwaves are closed. Your airwaves are closing up. You're struggling to take breaths in and breathe yeah. out because your airwaves are closing in and your muscles are spasming at the same time. So you can't, you actually want to like stretch out because you want to be able to breathe more, but you can't because your whole back is spasming. So you're like hunched over and, you, and it's affecting your breathing as well. And you're like, and then that's all. Then you just worry, like, am I going to die from this? Yeah. You know? And especially yeah. when you're hitting, when you're hitting the peak. Uh, yeah, it's and people. You know, there's more. There's a lot more deaths every year from jellyfish than sharks. Really. But obviously, we have we have this associated fear from movies and stuff, and just the fact that sharks look scary. Yeah. Um, and jellyfish kind of look like pretty lame, especially the box jellyfish. They box jellyfish are so small. Yeah. You don't really think of them as being you think of them as being like scary and dangerous, but not to the extent that they actually are. Is there any way to even like avoid them like proactively or anything? Like are the boats like the kayakers in the daytime like able to like look out for them or something? The big ones, yeah. So in the North <clears throat> Channel from Ireland to Scotland, which is a pretty incredible and hard swim because it's so cold. It's about yeah. you know, 50 to 60 degrees. Uh the jellyfish there are massive. So the lion's mane massive and they could be the lion's mane are massive and they could be in the six feet maybe yeah. more they're yeah huge like they're pretty they look like aliens underwater and you could see those because they're so big and so you could potentially like the boat could go ahead and you could look for jellyfish and then like you can, you can skirt around them yeah if, if, it's, if that's possible most of the time you just got to swim through them and it's like swimming through jellyfish soup but luckily this thing is there aren't too bad it's like they're like mosquito bites but if you get stung by a thousand mosquitoes it's gonna be pretty bad yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be painful for sure yeah. um i do want to hear about a couple of things i want to hear we we talked a little bit um a couple of days ago about basically how you got into all this stuff and you mentioned just like this bicycle trip from china to india was that your first, I mean, you, you talked earlier about being on the ocean and stuff, but was that one of your first like solo adventures? That was, yeah, that was my first solo adventure. Yeah. And I think even if you can go back earlier, like I remember, so I grew up in South Africa and I grew up actually, and this has some to do with the story later on. I grew up like quite privileged and, um, and I, I kind of realized I was privileged from quite early. And South Africa, it's there's a lot of poverty around you. So you, if you are privileged, you kind of realize pretty early that you are, you know. Yeah. And you have, so I remember like I remember like walking in my garden once when I was really young, and like there's a swimming pool there. It's beautiful. It's on the foot of a mountain. It's going to a great school, and I just felt like everybody, every kid must 
this must happen to every kid because uh, what did I do to deserve this? But then you go to school, like, you know, and you see like kids in the street who are like not going to school, especially not the same quality you are, and they don't have homes like you do. And I felt really guilty back then. And then I wanted, I kind of wanted to make a difference. And then um, even at that age, and then I obviously become a teenager and like you forget all that stuff. <laughs> and then so, but I, I have a, so I grew up in South Africa, but I have an Australian passport through my dad. And so I grew up, I grew up high school and undergrad in South Africa and I rode and I went to Australia to do a master's and I, I rode there. And then I got a job in Beijing in China and which was the most amazing, it was an amazing experience living in China, especially it was like pre, during and after the Olympics. And I got to, I lived there for three years and it was such an amazing time that I, I could have lived there forever. Um, but I realized I needed to get out of there, you know? And I basically had, I, I knew somebody that did cycle touring, did a cycle tour through Asia and Africa. And uh, I just kind of, I met him once and I asked him all these questions and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so one day after three years in Beijing, I just, I went to my boss, he was a good friend of mine. And, and uh, we, I just said, look, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm going to buy a bicycle. And I'm going to cycle, cycle West. I don't even know where I'm going. <laughs> and he's like, cool, man, like do that. Um, but like, <laughs> if you want a job afterwards, like just let's have a good relationship going forward. And like, yeah. see what happens when, at the end. And I was like, cool, that's amazing. So I literally quit like two weeks later, bought a bicycle and I was off. Like literally after I quit my job, but after I told him that it was like three weeks later, I was uh, on my first like solo trip and I had not, never done any cycle touring before. So I did a bit of research, bought, bought a bike, bought some pannier bags and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then I started riding and I was, I hadn't done any like endurance fitness for like three years. And so I was so unfit in the beginning, then he's built up this endurance as you go. I mean, it took four months to get across China, Central Asia, down to India, the Southern tip of India. So we ended it up Southern tip of India, but you can imagine. And I, so I, and I, I realized that, yeah, like obviously growing up doing rowing, like these six minute races, you know, it's, it's endurance as most and it's strength. And on this trip, I realized that's, we have some pretty good endurance and I wanted to keep doing stuff like this. Yeah. But because I spent so many days by myself, like I'm in the desert or in the mountains, just by myself, you know, six, seven hours a day of cycling. And I was helped so much by the, like the local communities. Like sometimes I just knock on, I'd be like, I would plan to get to a town. I wouldn't make it. And, just not, and before I'd come to like a farm and knock on a door and ask the people there if I could stay and they would let me and they would feed me, get me drunk. <laughs> and they would just like, we talk until midnight because I could yeah. speak a bit of Chinese then. And they, they, a lot of these people in rural communities had never really probably spoken to Western in their own language. And so we just talk, talk. And then uh, I had these amazing experiences with people, like the poorest people in the most living in the most rural conditions. And they were just people who were so nice, especially in China. And and that just really sat with me. And on the bike every day, I started thinking back to that promise I made when I was a kid about like wanting to make a difference especially to people like you less a lot less privileged than I was and especially in education I uh yeah I was on that trip where like kind of the future my future plan was devised you know the wheel started to turn in terms of keep on doing athletic events like this and yeah. then try to start something like a platform to raise money and to make a difference because when I finished the trip down in, the, in India, I did call my old boss his name was Webby and I called him up and I was like hey man I ran out of money <laughs> <And> <laughs> Is that he was doing work hours? I called all my colleagues over and we had this like big chat about everything and what I was doing and the whole trip because they wanted to get updates firsthand. And then eventually I just started talking to Webby, my boss, again. And I was like, man, I ran out of money, I need my job back. But I don't want to go back to Beijing. I think I've done Beijing. 
And he said, well, someone just quit in the London office. So you, if you can get a visa and get there, you get a job. But then you can imagine I'm like sitting in like a, in Canary Wharf in London in the financial district. And it's like sky rise, like doing a s- spreadsheets and stuff again, you know, <laughs> a little bit disillusioned. And then I once had a colleague come past me, this, uh, this girl, and she, um, <clears throat> she said to me like, hey, Cam, like, do crazy stuff like that again, like that cycling trip. Let's like this raise some money for charity. And I was like, yes, like I've been this is, this is the whole thing. Like I've been yeah. thinking about. Doing I was it. waiting for someone to say that. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, we started it together. We started this platform where I was gonna. Uh, the plan, the plan was like swim the English Channel, cycle the, the length of the United Kingdom, south to north, Lands End to John O'Groats, and then row across an ocean. Back then, it was the Atlantic Ocean, became the yeah. Indian Ocean. Yeah, um, and we wanted to do all in the one year, which was was which is quite the yeah ambitious. Um, but we did the we did the swimming and the cycle. So I would never really swum before. I could obviously cycle, and um, we did the cycle and the swim that year. And it was funny. Like I remember getting getting the idea for the the things, the cycle, the swim, and the row. And then I went to my dad, and I I told my dad I was like this is what I'm planning on doing to raise money. And I said, so I'm going to swim the cycle of the UK, swim the channel, row across the Atlantic Ocean. And I expected him to be like, you rowing across an ocean? Are you nuts? But he's like, he's, he had nothing to say about that. He's like, are you crazy? You're going to swim the English Channel? You can't even swim. Like he was just blown away. And he's like, don't be stupid. <laughs> you know? and I, I thought, I remember thinking, I thought you'd be worried about the rowing thing. It's a lot more dangerous. And he's, no, he's like, no, you can definitely do that. But yeah. this uh, swimming thing, she probably learned to swim first. <laughs> and it was this was about eight months before I was, I did it. And so I learned, I got a really good coach. I trained a lot and I just scraped across the English Channel. I made it in like 16 and a half hours. So it's like super slow. I'm like calling up onto the beach in, uh, in France <laughs> and like touching sand. It was like the best feeling I ever had, you know, like dry sand on your like your, um, your, your wrinkly hand from the water. <laughs> and yeah, that was a that was a life changing moment because I loved the actual training for that swimming and doing it. I knew I was going to keep doing that yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, that that's where that be. So I think I, that that became the Abunya Challenge, the charity. Because I eventually met a guy called um, Kevin Jennings, who used to fundraise for Obama in his 2008 campaign, and he, became, he worked in the White House, like Deputy Assistant Secretary of Education. So he like he grew up in education. He was an educator. He was a fundraiser. He had started numerous charities. One of them is called Glisten, which is uh, one of the biggest social rights charities in the world now. He started that himself in the in the 90s. And so and I met this guy and I told him what I was doing. And I, asked, I was asking him for advice on fundraising and things like that. And we had these discussions about fundraising. And eventually he's like, I'm going to help you fundraise. I'm going to throw, throw fundraisers for you. So he started, I learned so much from Kevin. He's like, he's still, we still like really good friends and he's my mentor. Yeah. And, um, and then he, he, he actually registered us as a charity. And then he was the chairman of the charity for a n- number of years. And he still is involved in the charity. Uh, yeah, so he was. Uh, I had this amazing person to teach me about nonprofits and fundraising, and um, he re- he re- helped to recruit a board. We have like sixteen board members. Um, so I've just kept swimming, and we have other athletes swimming for the charity and raising money. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's- can you kind of? Um, well, first of all, I want to know like, what do you think it is about you where you're able to bring up this idea, and then people are on board with it? You know, like I think that's a special trait that some people have and i don't know whether that's enthusiasm or they've like they or just dreaming big i guess but what what do you think that was where where you got people to to 
you you got to share the passion and then get other people passionate about it yeah i guess uh with a guy like kevin you meet the guy like him and you're immediately just attracted to him because he's just an incredible person yeah and i think i i change quite a bit when i speak to someone like him because he's such a good person and he's had so much experience and he's so effective at what he does so when i think when i was talking to kevin I was just like spilling my heart out to him. Yeah. And, like these are my goals. I don't know how I'm going to get there. But, yeah. Like, I'm trying to work across this ocean. And, like, <laughs> and, like trying to build these like uh, mobile classrooms uh, in rural South Africa. And I think he was like, and I'm just like just throwing all these ideas at him. And I would, and he's like, wow. I like it. He was obviously, I think he, um, I think he, the ways he used like, and he used like when he talks to the potential donors, he's like, Cam's like trying to, risking his life for these for this cause and these kids in africa so i think like the general the goal is there you know and um and because like it's authentic like you really do want to make this difference and you really want to throw across this ocean and you, you are doing it for a cause and i think that um that definitely attracts people especially people like kevin um to to that cause yeah i think it's you know blind ambition is quite healthy especially if you can like detach yourself <laughs> slightly from the outcome like you don't you want to do it but you don't know how you're going to do it and if you don't do it it's still going to be cool like aim for the stars and up at the moon or vice versa yeah one yeah. you know? well, it's um, so important to have those people that that are the people who are like yes i will help you in whatever way you need like those people are just incredible on anyone's journey you know because so many people are out there with good ideas and things like that but but the people who are the ones who are like supporting too are just so incredibly like important oh, yeah. in that whole journey. Hundred percent. Yeah. There's also there's this girl in um, <clears throat> Barbados called Christina. I met her once when I was training there. She was taking photos of me, and I kind of started talking. And and she like became my best friend there. And she helped me to plan everything, like all my swims there. And she just like did it, you know, the good of her heart. And she also yeah. joined the charity. And this person, people like that, like I wouldn't have done any of that stuff without her. She organized everything and she just wanted to do it. And we became like, you know, best friends. And even both of the swims that were successful, it was almost because of her. Like there was one point in the second time around Barbados where I was going past the place where I got out the time before. And it was the only negative part of that whole swim. Like I suddenly had a little bit of doubt. And then I saw her. She had, I didn't even know she was on the boat at this time because we had six boats. <laughs> there were six boats helping yeah. us get around at different stages, you know? Yeah. I didn't even know she was around. And then I saw her coming up to me in the kayak because there was a slight niggling thought, like, am I going to get out here again? You know? And then I saw her coming up to me in the kayak and she's quite like a hectic girl, you know? She's pretty yeah. hardcore and she's quite, like, she's quite strict, you know? And like, I looked at her, I was like, oh man, there's no chance of getting out now because she, she would hit me. <laughs> just be like no you're staying in the water and she like bat me with a kayak <laughs> so like there's no point in me like even trying <laughs> just keep going it'd be like easier just to swim around and um, then i went i kept going and it was fine after that that's amazing and then also around barbet when i did the barbados solution she's the one that she saw that i was struggling on the second day and i was like and i was having had heat stroke nobody else had realized that and she had just she had like an hour sleep previous and she got onto the deck and saw me and she was like cam's not right changes the whole plan everything and she's like She's like oh, talking to other guys, like, didn't you see he was like looking looking like that? And everyone was like, No, we didn't know. Like, but she knew she like knew straight away. And yeah. Uh, yeah. anyway, so you need you need people like that. And yeah, uh, yeah. I'm super grateful to have had her and Kevin and others. For sure. Can you talk a little bit about your charity? Like what what's I mean, you've you've mentioned the goal a little bit, but can you kind of expand on that and then um talk about what you've been able to do with it so far? 
Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in, in South Africa, obviously, and I went to university in a place uh, in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. And it's great, great university, small university in a university town, middle of nowhere. And it's my favorite place in the world. It's very rural though, and very poor outside of this town. And and so and I, I'm drawn to that area. And also in Zimbabwe, there's an area, I've always been drawn to the country of Zimbabwe. And we also wanted to have more of an African goal as opposed to just South Africa. And then, so when we were, and, and as I mentioned before, when I was growing up, I, I noticed kids like not going to school. And so I, I always yeah. wanted, the focus always wanted to be, I always wanted the focus to be education in, in the Eastern Cape and also Zimbabwe. And then, but then like, what do you, you can't just, from internationally, especially, you can't affect change in South Africa. You got to have people like on the ground. And so, and luckily, obviously growing up in that area, I knew a few people and I was put in touch with this lady called Di Hornby, who she had won South African Woman of the Year the year before for her work in this region. And so I started speaking to her and she um, she had started this foundation there and they became our partners. They're now called the Abunya Foundation. Our charity is called the Abunya Challenge. They helped us to like coin our name. Yeah. And um, and so they were working. They just, and she knew it like, and she knew the area really well. She knew all the locals, she knew all the chiefs, she knew everybody. And she said like the main issue here is that um, in terms of early childhood development, it's run by different, not by the Department of Education, it's run by a different department and it's super underfunded and the government's not doing anything about it. Uh, but the government will fund like centers if they're up and running and they're and they buy by a certain criteria. Yeah. But there's but there's no there was no sense. It's like like there was hardly there was I think probably like two in this hundred kilometer radius. Yeah. And you have all these villages scattered everywhere. And like all these kids are not going to school until the age of like five. They're going to the first day of school at the age of five or six, having not been to any classroom and at, at, at any education up until then. And kids' brains are developing the most, as you know, between in that yeah. you know, in that range. And so we had to like try to affect change there. And so we started with zero basically, and now we have 45 centers. And we all we do is we're an international charity. We just do handle the fundraising. And so whenever there's like a need for a new um, uh, center, like either in the beginning we use these things called edutainers, basically containers from a container ship that get fully kitted out as a yeah. classroom, you know, desk chairs, ventilation, everything. Get put in a truck, taken these areas. So that was our first goal: was to fund five of those. And um, and now we've done more of those and brick and mortar buildings, and we've inherited some others from like even a wider area. And so our partner is now married and it managed 45 sensors, um, you know, teaching up to a thousand kids a day. And that's been a 12 year process. That's amazing. Um, and as I said, we just, we, we, it's a very inside out approach. Like all the decisions, they originate from the chiefs. Like, obviously we, like we have people who work for our charity for our partners who consult with the chiefs, but like every, every decision comes from the chiefs and then comes through the communities and then it comes to our partners and it comes to us. And that's how it has to work in Africa. Everything has to be inside out. Yeah. You never like from an international perspective, like try to affect a change somewhere, like build a school somewhere. Like it just, it, it'll never work and your money will just like disappear. Yeah. This, this way, because it's from the chiefs, everybody has buy-in and every and all these villages and communities are so proud of these new sensors that they have. And these kids are learning on iPads now. That's one of our projects is to like connect them to the internet. Yeah. So now, now we have even have, like I mentioned this the other day, we have like international schools in like Australia and the UK that are fundraised for these schools in Africa they, they fundraise for like new toilet blocks and these kids are all interacting together from like the UK Australia yeah. in, uh, in in South Africa and and then we also have a cause in Zimbabwe where the issue is different the, the government is just kind of just bankrupt um, but they do have great structure the government has great structures there 
but they just don't have the, the, the finances to fund schools. So we're, in those situations, we actually fund infrastructure. We And uh, so we've built a, a new first A-level school in, this, in a ward, for example, north of Harare. There was kids are currently, kids are at that before they were walking, you know, five or six hours to in total to school. Yeah. Because they wanted to go to an A-level school and there weren't any in the ward. So now we bought this new school called Mawenje from like from scratch. And it's uh, it's completed now. And so it's six classroom blocks of science block and the government is funding everything. Like the teachers, the teachers at least and accommodating the teachers. So that's great that the government funds eventually will fund it. Same thing in South Africa. Once we have the early childhood development centers up and running and they abide by certain criteria, there's like there's three levels of funding. Um, And the the, the classrooms eventually, these centers eventually get funded by the government. So they become self-sustainable and they don't, they don't need us anymore. It's just getting them up and going. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, that's huge, man. I I love that. I, obviously, as a teacher, I connect to that idea so much because education really, I it's it's so funny. Like you see it taken for granted, I think, and and yet it is one of the most powerful things in the whole entire like world in the whole human existence is having a good education available to you. You know. 100%. Yeah. 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 yeah definitely. That's and amazing. it makes you it's so it's so sad when you, you hear stories about kids that go to their first day of school at the age of five or six yeah and i've just been sitting at home really until then and it's just because these kids don't really have a chance before they yeah. can even like think for themselves really yeah you know? yeah for sure i that's amazing and yeah i want to support that as however i can um is there a way for people like listening to support or or is it all through the the classroom uh things you, you can make donations um, through our website, okay. um, which is, it's kind of a hard name uh, to pronounce. It's called the Abunya Challenge, U-B-U-N-Y-E challenge.com. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can donate. I'll, I'll share website. it on here for sure. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. And then also we we have the school partnership program where we've spoken about this a little bit, where schools, if they want to like join the program, they can, the kids at their school could, could fundraise with help from obviously the teachers and the programs. Um, and they can have direct, they can fund like a toilet block or something and see it getting constructed and yeah. built. And they can have direct communication with the kids and the practitioners and everybody and the communities in that area. Yeah. We do it, we're doing it currently with a school in the UK. And uh, that those kids are going to go at the end of the year to actually visit the communities in South Africa and no see, way. Like, what, oh, see that's the tangible, cool. yeah. tangible outcomes. So, yeah, I think this is like it's teach, it's kids helping kids really. And it's, um, it's, it's win, win, win. That's, and that's a powerful experience for, for kids to be able to do that definitely especially coming from first world countries yeah uh, where you don't get exposure to you know what's happening in uh, you know in rural in rural africa and other poor areas in the world yeah for sure well i have to i can't let you go without hearing about the impossible row the drake passage uh we've had john on a few times john peterson uh amazing dude i really every time he's on i'm just sitting there like taking notes over everything he's saying he's amazing but uh yeah. but yeah how did you get involved in that you guys rode a boat uh to antarctica <laughs> yeah yeah you know john john's one of the reasons and the rest of the crew are the reasons it was so successful because we had a great crew and, yeah and a, a great crew of leaders too and and just good people um i think that was probably a, the defining factor on why we were so successful on such like a crazy ridiculous <laughs> expedition yeah um, I got involved because I'd previously rode across the Indian Ocean and and I did it with Jamie and Fian, who were both crew members on this row. So this was the brainchild of Fian Paul, who's an Icelandic rower. 
and kind of a crazy dude but he's like he gets the job done and uh and so it was Fian and Jamie and then one of John's friends Andrew got recruited there and they went to university together yeah and uh, I was pulled in I think then John and then the guy called Colin O'Brady who's um he's kind of like he's a he's a more of a he's a he never rode before but he's an amazing athlete and he yeah. he'd walked across Antarctica before so we had a bunch of like really good quality rowers and then Colin he was like he learned how to row quite well before but he, his leadership ability was like unparalleled it was, it was amazing working with him and you know, we had this amazing crew and now the whole goal is to row from the Drake Passage from like South America to Antarctica through the you know this Drake Passage is like the craziest body of water because you have like you have the Pacific, you have the Atlantic, and the Southern Oceans all converging, Just like, like smashing into each other. Passageway, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and the low pressure cells. You just you hear stories about it that go through there, the storms, and like the waves they keep going around the world, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. There's no like there's no landmass like separating like you're getting in the way of these waves. Yeah. And then so you have these huge freak waves sometimes, and so just going just like attempting this row was was pretty insane and super dangerous. And I actually remember talking to John like a couple of days before we left. We had a chat, and he's like, "Man, should we should we be doing this?" Because I'd rode across an ocean before, and like, <laughs> yeah. and he was like, and he had never rode, even been on an ocean rowing boat before. And I was like, "Yeah, no, yes." Like I was like, but I was like, because we had like, we you have to have a supervising vessel take you to Antarctica. It's the Antarctic Treaty, so we had to have a supervising vessel, which mitigated a lot of the risk, a lot of the risk. But now we still have to deal with these huge waves and like the yeah. freezing cold. And having a guy like like John is an amazing leader. Andrew also, um, you know, he's a management consultant, and he took us through workshops, like in the in the build up to this row, and like how to like communicate better, what are our goals? Like oh, that's we, cool. Yeah, and so like I, I felt like a mass a family that just came really together. We just helped each other to get across. Yeah, I remember like it was like day three was our first big storm, and like myself and Jamie were on a shift with Colin, and then. It was John, Andrew, and Fionn on the other shift. So we were interchanging with John and Andrew both like on on his shift. And the storm just kept getting bigger and bigger. And the sun went down. And we got all these just caught it. It's like a roller coaster in the dark. You can't even see these waves. Yeah. And I remember like coming, going into the cabin and like uh, John, Andrew was coming out to replace this. And he said this like massive, he just looked like deer in the headlights. It's fear, you know, because it's like these huge waves. And we just like we just kind of shared a few words and just like spoke to each other, gave to the hug, and it's like it's going to be over one day. Like this is not going to last forever. Yeah, that's what you, that's what you have to hear when you're out there because it, it feels like it's going to last forever. <laughs> and then it feels like an hour, and um, and it's just so dangerous. But you eventually get through it. And we each step of the way, like we helped each other. Yeah, and, and we just we were vulnerable with each other. We weren't trying to be like macho. We weren't trying to do this for ego reasons. We just wanted to like do this for each other, and uh, it was a beautiful experience. And we we got through the hell of the Drake Passage, and then eventually you get into an Antarctica, and suddenly it's just like you're in heaven. Yeah. You surrounded by icebergs, you know, orcas, um, penguins. It's this amazing winter wonderland filled with so much life, and you just feel so blessed to be there. Yeah, dude. That's I. I mean, I so I obviously watched the documentary um, that Discovery put out. Um, and I'm, I'm a, it's, it captures it in that, but I, you know, when you experience in real life, what Antarctica is like with all the icebergs and everything, like it just has to be like almost indescribable. 
Yeah, and you, but you never forget. Like once you've seen it, like you have this, you have this the images like in your head, and like it's it's so amazing. I I advise everyone to try go there at least once um, yeah. to see the see the ice and see to see how it makes you feel because it's untouched down there. Yeah, and you never lose that feeling when you first get there and you see you see everything. You're like for us, we were like dodging icebergs. <laughs> <laughs> You're like these are beautiful but terrifying. Yeah, no, they and they move fast. So yeah, yeah, we actually had a pretty close encounter once with the iceberg and just missed it. Yeah. Okay. Was it weird afterwards, like months later or whatever, when the documentary came out? Was that was it weird to watch this thing that took weeks and weeks distilled down into like a one hour thing? It was it didn't feel too weird. It was actually it was really nice having a reminder yeah. of like of the whole thing. And that's that's the great the greatest blessing of the documentary is like when we're sixty years old, we can watch it again and we can show our kids. Yeah. And uh, we have this awesome reminder of what happened. And you know, the other the other things like I enjoy watching with other people because you can like describe what what else happened, you know, all yeah. the side things yeah. that happened along the way, which is like yeah. maybe sometimes more interesting. Um was there yeah. anything that you wish would have gotten in like that you're like this was like a huge really significant part of this for me and then you know just by based on you know distilling it down to an hour they weren't able to put that in uh yes i think oh no i think they caught the main moments okay you know, of us seeing land for the first time and yeah the, the most amazing memory for me and one i really appreciate that's in the documentary is when we we rode so we first saw land and then and then me and Jamie had this had a shift off so we were back in the cabin hanging out and then the um the other shift managed to like get alongside Smith Island yeah and so we hadn't we had just been able to see it like and like because quite foggy like in just in the horizon and then he went for a sleep for like an hour and a half and we came back on land and it was like right next to us and like suddenly from like these big waves to like it went completely flat and so we got onto where we our seats for rowing. We started rowing, just perfectly flat water, <laughs> ocean, yeah. ocean, perfectly flat. And there's this massive, it's called Smith Island. It goes from like zero to like 7,000 feet. Wow. Back straight up. And it's just like white snow and ice. And was, we just rode, and we just rowing past it like normally, just like casual, <laughs> like Sunday afternoon row in the, on a river, you know, rowing past this massive, like, mountain of ice like so it was so incredibly beautiful and the and i was so happy and the the cameras like well they they use that footage in the show smith island looks tiny because of the angle from the cameras like, yeah <laughs> but it was massive and it looked almost like it was dwarfing us and i just i looked at my face in the documentary and i was like yeah that's that was like one of the best feelings of my life that's amazing man it's wow that's that's incredible and they got you they also got you jumping in naked into the uh yeah. into the water which you're uh, like they're uh, obviously putting this in right like when <laughs> yeah yeah but it was it was so if i could tell you about that a little bit like it was so funny because like it wasn't our intention or my intention i just we'd um we'd gone on because the the winds there are just going doing 360s right slow pressure yeah cells. the winds are hardly yeah. ever with you and when the winds are against you at least above eight knots you can't row because the boat's yeah. way too big even though we're kind of like we're strong dudes like we can't like yeah. there's no way yeah. you can move forward in those conditions yeah. so we always put, put the sea anchor out yeah which means you're basically stuck in place and the winds are pushing you back but they kind of hold the sea anchor holds you there yeah and it could go be from 12 hours to 24 hours and we just come off i think it was our third sea anchor it was about 24 hours and and we all be stuck in the cabins together we used to do shifts <laughs> like one one person on the actual deck in a storm 
three guys in the actual cabin, like just <laughs> holding on to each other. Yeah. And so I come off 24 hour sea anchor and guys, as soon as the weather kind of settled down, the three other guys went onto the deck and I was in the actual cabin by myself. <laughs> and I was feeling like so run down and dirty because we've been rowing for like six days and I haven't washed. And I just felt like groggy, you know, being in this cabin for like 12, 24 hours. And I was like, man, I just need to jump in the water. I just need to clean myself. I need to, re- I need to reset. Yeah. And, and I feel like everybody needed to reset at that stage. Yeah. Because you were just less than halfway as well, which is a really tough, tough time. Totally. Anyways, so, but I, you can't just like jump in the water. You got to like get permission from the crew. Because like this could be seen as being dangerous, you know. But I, I've, I saw them called with like this all the time for like for half an hour. Yeah. And at that stage, you're, it is dangerous. But if you're just jumping in for a couple of minutes, like it's fine. But I get, I didn't, I just wanted to ask permission first. So, um, uh, Colin was the uh, the first mate, and Fian was a captain. But I went to the I went to the cabin, and and I think uh, Colin was fiddling fiddling with one of the GoPros. So I said to Colin, I'm like, uh, hey man, like uh, I just want to say, like, pretty relaxed. I was like, hey man, just like I'm just gonna like jump in the water quick. <laughs> and like I, I just need a refresh. Like, is that alright? And Colin's like, yeah man. Like he used a few like expletives in it, but he's like, yeah man, that's he's most like he's such a like excitable dude. So American, he's like, yeah, man, that sounds awesome. Like, <laughs> and then, um, and then Fian overheard because he was in the cabin still, and he was a bit more like uh, risk adverse. He's like, no, Cam, I don't think we should do it. Uh, it's dangerous. And I was like, I mean, Cam looked at each other like, now we're doing it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you could see, like, you could kind of see Fian like wasn't too phased about it. So I'm just yeah. gonna do it. And then, uh, anyway, so then I think so. Colin gets on the radio and he calls the to the boat and he's like. All right, guys, like Cam's gonna jump in naked. Cam's gonna jump in the water. You're gonna come get the footage. It's I didn't actually say naked yet. Like, Cam's, gonna, Cam's gonna jump in the water. You guys must come over and get the footage. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, cool, cool. So the radio comes back. So they're coming, they're gonna wherever they were, like 500 meters where they're coming close. And I was like, oh damn, man. Like I was I just wanted to swim naked. Like uh, and I guess I can't swim naked anymore because like I don't want to see some naked dude jumping in the water. And Colin, like Colin's eyes just went like this. And he's like a marketing dude too, you know. He's like, you definitely saw me naked. Like, <laughs> they're gonna love that. And I was like, "Are you sure?" He's like, "Yeah, man. This is Discovery. They like they do this program called Naked and Afraid, where people are naked the whole time." Yeah. <laughs> I like, oh yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. And so yeah, so I just so uh, yeah, so I just got naked, and they obviously did everything out. And That's it was just like it was very freeing, and uh, and I only swam for like three minutes, or and it was the water yeah. wasn't too cold. I think it was probably. Uh, 40 oh, maybe like 38 degrees just not like it's about freezing at least yeah <laughs> it's still it was a sort of shocked like jumping in it, it took my breath away a little bit more than i expected <laughs> uh, there's a bit of a wind chill as well yeah but what an experience that so you feel you definitely feel like you're in the drake when you're actually in the water yeah and i did a did a swim back and forth and i got back in but actually the cool thing was like i just felt like the crew everybody in the crew kind of like had a shift too because now yeah. you're not just not just mundane like rowing the whole time i was like some crazy dudes jumped in the water and it's like it's kind of reset the the mindset of everybody yeah um yeah which is i didn't, didn't expect that but it was quite cool oh so you weren't like i have a tool in my back pocket if everyone gets like in a funk and we've been stuck in the cabin for 24 hours, this is going to just boost everybody. Now, now I do. Then, then I was just to, <laughs> and I told people before that I was going to like before I got on, went on this trip, and I was like, I'm definitely going to jump in the water because I'm a swimmer. Yeah, yeah, you and got people, to man. People always ask me like, so you going to get you going to go for a swim? I was like, yeah, I'm going for a swim. So yeah. I kind of had to. Yeah. Have you swam in every ocean now? Um, yeah, I guess so. Never like swam in a northern. Like in the in the Arctic. Okay. 
That's the next cool. part. That's the next yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah Just cool. race a polar bear or something. Yeah. You know, those guys can swim. Those guys can swim pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have, so to, to wrap up, uh, I want to hear about this cause I've never had the experience. I'm sure a lot of people haven't had the, I guess you'd call it like the land ahoy experience. Can you just describe that feeling, whether it's swimming or rowing, like, what does it feel like when you've been out for days and days doing these hard, really hard endurance feats and just being in the middle of the ocean and then all of a sudden seeing land again? Like, what does that feel like? Yeah, I guess it's a it's a combination of relief and euphoria because when, for example, on the drag passage, you just, you're just rowing, batting, you know, 24 hours a day. And it just feels like there's no end in sight. Yeah, there is, uh, and also the and the Indian Ocean. It was uh, it was two months of that, and you get through the whole that whole period, you're just like never gonna make it. You can see yourself inching closer and closer, but it's like it feels never ending, right? Yeah, and you never ex you never like get your hopes up that you're gonna make it. You just like <laughs> every day, it's like you know one bite at a time, and then and then you see it like either it's an article like the first landmass or it's the Seychelles this island chain in the Indian Ocean or it's like St Lucia these massive volcanic islands and you see it and suddenly you think like oh man it's the first time you ever think like I'm actually gonna make I could actually make this you yeah. know and it's so it's relief and it's the and it's just and it's euphoric it's, very, it's a very euphoric feeling hard to describe too yeah you, yeah but it's uh it's 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 life-changing hey yeah. yeah is that is that something that draws you back like having that feeling i wouldn't say that i would say because i feel like to do a lot of this endurance adventurous thing these, these things you can't yeah. be too hooked up on the outcome like you gotta have the very yeah. specific goal like you want to make it like the swim in solution probability solution as an example like it's just such a crazy swim and it's you can picture it so much you can like go over in your mind so much beforehand um, and you, it's so your goal is like so concrete. Um, and, but you can't, for me, I, you, I don't, I never really want to get too attached to it. Yeah. Otherwise if you're too fixated on it, that's when you stop really enjoying it as much. Yeah. And you, and then you, you got to do it. And because you detach from it a little bit, you, you just, you, you embrace the uncertainty behind it. Like anything can happen along the way. Yeah. Like I don't have to make it right. Like I just, I just want the uncertainty. That's the whole reason why you do it is the, you hold on to this uncertainty of it and uh and yeah so it's i wouldn't say that's that seeing land that one feeling that euphoric feeling that gets you there it's like it's more the whole adventure of of these things that like really motivates me to keep doing that yeah yeah, yeah. But, and most of it's the training and just the people you meet along the way yeah for sure well i know you have uh things planned in the future at some point you'll be able to talk about all of those really awesome adventures that you're going to go on um, where can people kind of like follow along with your journey, support your foundation, all of that stuff? Uh, yeah. So, uh, the bonyachallenge.com is a, is a good, good resource. Um, I have a friend that's been working on a website for me for a couple of years. We just haven't like finished it. Like we just, you're pretty useless. Every time he works it down to like do it, we just like talk about other stuff and doesn't get done, but, uh, <laughs> It probably will be a actually it's a good motivation for me to do it because i can say it now like maybe cameronbellamy.com i think will be the, okay. the uh, url so 
I'll call Nick. He lives at the right. He's one of my best friends from high school. In this would be time live. pressure, time pressure for him. Like, yeah, come on, man. Like, <laughs> like Nick, you got to push it out. Let's do it. I think it's all ready to go. I just haven't like pushed it out yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So CameronBellamy.com would be hopefully up in a, maybe it's up by the time this podcast comes out. That would be amazing, <laughs> man. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Cameron, thank you so much for coming on. Seriously. This was, I was looking forward to this conversation all week long and, uh, and I think like not only just the adventures, but the like mindset kind of gems that you shared, like, I know I'm going to be using them in endurance things that I'm trying or, or just life in general, when it becomes overwhelming and, and instead of, instead of pushing it down, just like letting it, letting it, letting you feel it, you know, let it, let it, let it come up and it eventually it wears itself out. You know, yeah. The, uh, the energy dissipates. Yeah. No, it's a, uh, it's a great technique. I, I love to hear feedback on what you think about it. Yeah. If you, especially if you read the book, um, yeah, I'm on oh, reading yeah. again. It's my fifth iteration of the book. So dude, I'm starting it as soon as I'm, I'm finishing a book right now, but as soon as I'm done with that one, I'm starting it for sure. So yeah. awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I really, uh, enjoyed it and I would be completely honored to chat with you again at some point. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on Chris. It's been great. Yeah. All right. That wraps up this week's episode of the like a Bigfoot podcast. Uh, huge thanks to Cameron for coming on the show. Um, I've been inspired by him and what he's done for years now, uh, ever since I kind of started tuning into what they were doing with that big row across the Drake passage. Um, and it was like, honestly, just the biggest honor to be able to sit down and kind of hear his journey. Um, obviously I was very fascinated by the big swims. Um, I just think it's hard, like even as an endurance runner, like when I go out and do an ultra run or whatever, you know, I can always just stop. I can always sit down. I can always eat some food, take my time. But to not be able to do that, to have that constant forward momentum uh, or constant movement, really, because even if you're sitting there treading water, like you're constantly going, it's just is fascinating to me. But but more so, it's the whole like, where does your mind go? When you're that tired and you're floating in nothingness and you're in the ocean, the biggest part of our world with like unknown things underneath you. And uh, you know what I mean? Like it's the biggest, most mysterious thing on earth uh, to me. Um, and when you're that exhausted floating in that, it's so crazy where your mind has to go. And I, my biggest takeaway from this whole episode, I'm actually about to download the book, um, was that idea of letting go. Um, the idea of, of not bearing stuff, not pushing stuff aside. Um, it's the idea of dealing with it in the moment because you're going to have to deal with it eventually. And I've heard that from multiple endurance athletes as a huge part of their process. Um, but thinking about it and applying those ideas to a 56-hour event like Cameron went through uh, or something terrifying like the Drake Passage with these giant waves and and all of that, uh, it just, it's just like, you know, it's, it's this lesson people will tell you, but then you hear it from someone who's done something like, like Cameron or some other folks I've had on the podcast and you're like, oh. That must be an important lesson all these like really successful um, and driven people have been using it. 
Um, you know, and I think I wonder, and I, maybe I should have asked, but like, is that a, almost like a harder lesson to apply in real life where, you know, you have a billion things going on all the time at once in our busy lives, you know, like if you're, if I'm out on a run, I know there's aspects to it and I don't want to downplay those aspects. It's like, what, what do you have to eat? How, what's your pace? Like all that stuff. But really like if I'm out on a run for an entire day versus me just being at home and being dad and being teacher and being husband and, and you know, (laughs) all of that, me out on a run has way less to do, you know, like I'm doing probably like 1% of the amount of brain activity as I am at home in real life, you know, um, obviously the going out and being active for a whole entire day is a physical challenge for sure. And it's a mental challenge. A lot of times to just keep yourself going, but ultimately like I just have to go that way and I just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that's like, that's it, you know? Whereas in my regular day to day, there's, I probably make like 2000 decisions a day, you know? And I wonder if it's harder when those feelings come up or something's happening, instead of feeling it, it's really easy to distract yourself. And it's also really easy to be like, I'll deal with that. I'll deal with those emotions later because I have like 10 more things on my to-do list, you know? And it's really easy to push stuff aside and not give yourself space, um, which is the reason why I I enjoy exercising. I enjoy kind of i mean i i enjoy waking up at 4 a.m i i honestly do i don't i might not enjoy like the moment my alarm goes off but when i'm out there going for my run in the morning i'm enjoying it because i am giving that time and that space to myself um but i but i'm very excited to jump into the book uh letting go because i want to know what the strategies are and I'm sure some of the strategies I've done, and I'm sure I've done them a handful of times, but I just haven't like intentionally used them as like tools in the toolbox uh, when the going gets tough, you know? Um, I was just thinking about this today. I was walking up, I was walking my kids up from their elementary school and it's a big snowstorm today. So we're like in the snow and everything and it's cold and all that. And we have probably like, you know, a little bit of a walk to get to the car and I'm just trying to drop like cheesy dad stuff on them, you know, like I'm trying to just be cheesy dad. And so they're like, this is cold. And then I'm just like, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, you know, like stuff dad say, they give us a book. Like as soon as we have kids, you get like a quote book for dads. Anyways, so I say that and I'm like, but then I started thinking about, I'm like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Like when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I'm like, it sounds cool and it sounds smart, but I'm not 100% sure what that even means. I guess it means like when things get hard, make sure you are committing to an action of some sort, you know? Uh, but with to connect it to this book, it would be nice to know when things get hard, what is an action your brain can take to... Uh, to help you in those moments and to let you process that information. So, um, and that those emotions and, and all that, and it'll ultimately help you find success and help you keep going, you know?
So maybe it should say something like, when the going gets tough, the tough process that information and process those emotions and then they get going and they they keep going they just they just keep going but i i'm i'm uh workshopping that phrase i i'm sure it'll sound smarter next time uh when i put it on a t-shirt okay um all right that's it um hope you all enjoyed the podcast please check out the abunye challenge uh check out cam underscore Abunye or just look up Cameron Bellamy on Instagram. I know he has some awesome adventures coming up. Uh, and yeah, I hope I can have him back on the podcast sometime. I would love to just dive deep on on some of that mindset stuff. So uh, that's it. This has been Like a Bigfoot Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for supporting our show. Um, we're going to have more information about our documentary, which is about to come out in, a, in probably like three weeks. Uh, so I'll have more information for you on that next week. And then we're going to do some episodes that kind of tie into that. So, uh, yeah, come on back. Uh, we'll talk to you soon.